You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I've told this story here before, but it bears repeating that when I was in high school, I had one goal and one goal only. And that was to excel at football. My father had been great at football. He had a binder of newspaper clippings of his exploits on the football field. And my older brother had been great at football. He had a similar binder filled with newspaper articles about his success on the football field. So as I entered high school, I thought, man, I'm going to have to win a, a Heisman, which you can't even do to just earn the family name around here. And so you can imagine my disappointment freshman year when at 120 pounds, uh, I was placed as the center of the offensive line. Right? That's uh, the quality of ball we were playing on my team. Not great, but I worked hard over that summer, bulked up, got trained. And by the time I entered my sophomore year, I got the position I wanted, cornerback on defense. And I remember after the first game, they elevated me to the starting role on the junior varsity team. I, I know, shocking. And uh, I was nervous. I remember as I showed up there, I was like, oh my gosh, you can do this. Believe in yourself. All right. And as the game began, I remember I was out there playing corner. And sure enough, the quarterback came our way and a receiver ran out into my area. And then for some odd reason, ran in front of me and then turned and extended to catch the ball right in the perfect position for me to hit him. I'm like, you've made a huge mistake. And so I just plowed into this kid. He dropped the ball and I stopped the pass. And I remember the entire defense ran over to me, grabbed me, started hugging me, jumping up and down. They're like, you did it. And I was like, I did? Did I do it, guys? I think I did too. And so it was pretty exciting. And then two plays later, they ran the option my direction. Now, if you're not familiar with football, what that means is the quarterback... He threw the football to one of the two running backs. And so the two running backs were running towards me. One to block him and then him to run with the ball. And what they taught me was when that happens, you run at them and you knock the first guy out of the way and tackle the second guy. And I was like, that's the plan? Does that even work? Like, how's that gonna happen? And yet, sure enough, here they both came and I thought, okay, I'm just gonna try this. And I went running at them and I remember I hit the first guy and he glanced off me. And as soon as he did, the running back was standing right in front of me, looking as surprised as I was that I was there. And so I grabbed him, we both fell down together and I stopped the sweep. And the team went running up to me, grabbed me again, started hugging up and down, jumping with me. And they're like, you did it. And I remember it was right at that moment it was like the soundtrack kicked in the background. It's like you could hear the drums. You can hear, you're like, I did do it. My name is Ben Stewart and I play football. They had to punt the ball. Second series began. And I remember as the second series began, they ran the ball the other direction. I assumed at this point because they were afraid of me. And yet as soon as the play ended, suddenly I saw sky, grass and landed on the ground. And I was like, what the heck just happened? 
and my knee hurt so bad. I was like, somebody dead-legged me like crazy. But then instantly I thought, I want to hurry up and get off the field. I didn't want to be the guy that was like laying on the grass for 20 minutes and everyone gets real silent and real scared. And they're all whispering prayers and crying. And then he hops up and he's fine. You're like, why'd you stress this out? I didn't want to be that guy. So I was like, let me hurry and get up. But then the coaches ran out. They put me on the ground. They said, don't stand up. And then I remember at that moment, I was like, guys, I'm fine. And then one of them put his hand on my knee and I let out a torrent of cuss words. To the point that they had to shift as coaches from going like, it's okay, son, it's okay to like, hey, stop it, knock that off right now. (laughs) Ambulance ride, MRI, all that. Later, they find out that I had snapped my femur in half. Yeah, biggest bone you have. And so that whole football dream was over. And I remember laying in that hospital bed, and I was theological enough at the moment to say, God did this to me. God did this to me. How do you handle that? What do you do when you have a plan? And it's a good plan. And God doesn't let you have it. That's where we are today. And let me start by this. Let me just start by making the point that everybody has a plan. Point one is everyone makes plans. Even the people who say they don't make plans, make plans. I experienced this all the time when I was a youth pastor and then a college minister. I'd ask people, well, what's your plan? What are you going to do when you graduate? What do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, okay. And so I realized they all say, I don't have a plan. I'm like, but everyone makes plans. So we developed a game called Twice Your Age where I would ask people like, how old are you? And they'd say, well, I'm 20. I'm like, okay, now you're 40. And then I would ask them questions and they would answer as if they were a 40-year-old. And it was the funniest thing because so many of them would say like, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. What do you want to do when you graduate? I'm not sure. Like, okay, let's play this game. Twice your age. You're 20. Now you're 40. Okay, are you married? Oh, yeah. You have kids? Mm-hmm. I have three. The oldest is 16. He's five foot nine. has kind of sandy dark hair. He likes soccer and girls with quirky personalities. And uh, I've got a low interest 15-year mortgage on a home just out in Manassas. And suddenly there's all this detail. You're like, oh, you do have a plan. You may not know how you're going to get from A to B, and so that's why there's all this lack of commitment, but you have a vision. So even if your map of your life is drawn in crayon, you still have a sense of, hey, in the future, here's where I want to be financially. Here's where I want to be relationally. Here's where I want to be in my career. I have a picture of my life. I may not know how to get there, but that's what I want. Everybody makes plans. And where we are in our text today, David is making plans. Now, we fast-forwarded in David's story. I don't know if you picked up on that. If you've been in the series with us where we last left our hero, he was in his 20s on the run from the mad King Saul out in the middle of the wilderness. And yet, as 1 Samuel came to the close, it was actually a, a, a great cliffhanger, great way to end season one. You see that David had gone to live among the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, because he couldn't go anywhere else to hide from King Saul. Meanwhile, the Philistines had marshaled their forces to attack Israel. And King Saul and his desperation had gone to the witch of Endor to meet a necromancer to find out the truth. And she told him, you're going to die at that battle. As they arrived at the battle, David and his men are there with the Philistines. And the Philistines say, hey, is David going to ride out with us against his own country? And they go, or is he going to betray us on the battlefield? So they send David away. And so in the finale, season finale, you see David have to leave the battle. He goes back, finds out that raiders had stolen their wives and children. His men are mad, want to kill him. But at the very end, David has to run and go fight against these raiders while Saul goes out. And David overcomes these raiders, rescues his wives, rescues his children. And they see Saul and his men get destroyed and Saul leans on his spear as he dies slowly in front of the Philistines, the people he was meant to defeat, but he never did because he was chasing David. And that's where 1 Samuel ends. 
And so as it begins, you're left with the cliffhanger. What's David gonna do? Is he gonna go grab the kingdom? Or how do you handle that? And you see what David does is he mourns King Saul. Even though Saul tried to kill him, he's sad about him. Because an L for the king is an L for the whole nation. And David grieves the loss. And he grieves Jonathan, his friend who loved him. And he said, our love was greater than that of a woman, which is not a sexual term. It was two brothers that were deeply bound in a warrior culture and had comfort expressing that love powerfully, something that a lot of men have lost today. And so the reality is he's deeply mourning the loss of his friends. And yet he doesn't try to grab the kingdom. He just goes to his tribe of Judah and he becomes king in Hebron for almost seven years. And he leads in Hebron while uh, Abner, Saul's commander, puts a puppet king in charge over Israel. And as that puppet king leads over there, Abner faces off against Joab, uh, David's commander. And they have their men come out for some friendly competition that turns into deadly competition. And in the middle of that, Joab's little brother starts chasing Abner. Abner's like, don't chase me. I don't want to kill you. Your brother will be upset. The guy keeps chasing him. So Abner has to drive a spear through his stomach and kills him. Joab is understandably miffed by this. And so he sends people to attack and that they're about to rage against each other. And they realize this is too much bloodshed. We can't handle this. And so they have a truce. And meanwhile, Abner goes back home. Turns out the puppet king accuses him of sleeping with his wife. Abner gets offended, understandably. And so he says, I'm out of here and I'm going to help all of Israel go to David. So he goes to David, says, I'm going to meet with the elders of Israel and get them on your side. David says, that's awesome. David, there's a party. He and Abner have dinner. Everything's cool. Joab comes later and is like, wait, David partying with Abner killed my brother Abner. And so Joab reaches out and said, hey, can you call Abner? Because we need to have a conversation. He comes and he stabs him in the stomach and kills him. And David's like, whoa, man, everybody stop killing each other, chill. And so David starts mourning all this loss of life. And the Israelites go, you know, this king's kind of cool. Look at him mourning for us. And so they say, we should establish him as king. So suddenly the puppet king gets murdered by his own men. Ish, uh, Abner's dead. Ishbosheth's gone. Joab is sequestered. And so David rises up to become king over the nation. Now, as he does that, the Philistines keep attacking. So he has to subdue the Philistines. The ark is off God knows where. Uh, J- Jerusalem is held by the Jebusites. So David has to rescue the capital city, get the ark back subdue his enemies, and establish his kingdom. So when we meet him now, he's done all that. And he's king. And he's sitting there wondering, well, what do I do now? Like, that was kind of crazy. So he starts making plans. Is it wrong to make plans? No. And he says, hey, the battles are done. What do I want to do? And he's like, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to build a house for the Lord. He said, I got a house for cedar, the ark's in a tent. I'm gonna build a house for the Lord. And he tells his buddy Nathan, hey, I wanna do this. And Nathan looks at him and says, do all that's in your heart because the Lord is with you. That's good advice. David, the best you know how, you're following the word of God, you're following the will of God, then just do what's in your heart. And David's like, well, this is gonna be awesome. This is gonna be the signature component of my second term. I'm gonna build this temple. It's gonna take about two, t- 10 years. It's gonna be amazing. And so they go to bed all amped about it. This is gonna be great. And yet the next morning, Nathan has met with the Lord because he was the prophet. And in Second Chronicle, or First Chronicles, which retells the story, it's even more stark. In First Chronicles 17, it says, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it's not you that will build me a house to dwell in. So if point one was everybody makes plans, point two is God shoots down plans. He does it all the time. And honestly, it's the thing that scares many of us about trusting God. You're hearing people like, you got to trust the Lord, trust him with your life. And you're like, yeah, but I kind of got a plan. I got a place I want to go. And so you're like, I know I need a spiritual element in my life. I want him in the car, but don't touch the wheel. I'm driving. I know where I want to go. So yeah, get in here, but don't mess with me because I got a plan. And many of us were scared of how God might mess up our plan. The irony is that he can do whatever he wants, whether you acknowledge him or not. 
Sometimes we're like children that we're like, let's play hide and seek. And they cover their eyes like, you're gone now. You're like, no, son, I'm not gone. And so you can say, man, I don't want God to mess with me. But Proverbs 16 says, well, in the hearts of man plans his course, but it's the Lord who determines his steps. Proverbs 19, many are the plans in a man's heart. Did you have plans this year? But it is the Lord's purposes that prevailed. The Lord foils the plans of nations. He thwarts the purposes of peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. God does whatever he wants, whether you like it or not. And some of you, that's really encouraging. Others of you are like, I hate this sermon. I'm sad I came here today. How is this good news? Hey, you're making plans. God's going to destroy him. God bless you. Like, why are you saying these things to me? How do you respond when you got a good plan and God breaks your leg? Well, number one, let me show you what David does. Number one is you listen. You listen. You receive the word of God. I don't understand what's happening, but God lays out his heart. The no David gets, no, you can't build it, is not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. And God begins to speak to him. And God starts telling him a story of perspective about his life. He goes back into history and says, hey, I've never lived in a house. Never asked anyone to build me a house. I don't need a house. I don't need a house. I'm doing something that doesn't require the ownership of a property. But in verse eight, he says, but say this to David. I took you from the pasture, from following sheep to make you prince over my people of Israel. Hey, hey, everything you've experienced to get you where you are, I did that. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies before you. God takes credit for David's glory in battle. That's a little humbling. Man, I just keep beating all these guys. Yeah, I know. I kind of worked that out. I've led you this far. But then he moves forward and notice, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I'll plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. You don't need to build me a dwelling. I'm building a dwelling for my people. And violent men won't afflict them anymore from the time that I appointed judges over Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. You don't need to give me a place of repose. I'm building a place of rest for you. Moreover, the Lord declares, and the Lord will make you a house. David, you're trying to build me a house, a little physical house. No, I'm building you a house. And he doesn't mean a physical house. David already has one. What he's saying is, I'm building you a dynasty. I'm doing something here, David, that's significant. That when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you from your own body and I'll establish his kingdom, meaning your, your name will continue. And he'll build a house for my name. And David's son Solomon did that. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, that's different. And I'll be to him a father. He'll be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love, my said, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He says, David, hey, that's a great plan you had, but I have a plan. And I want you to hear my plan. And my plan is better than your plan. And that's the comfort we can get today is we have a God with a plan. So as we submit our plans to him, we need to stop and go, well, wait a minute, let me hear his plan. 
Because when Jeremiah spoke to his people, he says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Why is it good news to know your plans may fail, but his purposes prevail? Because when you know his heart, you realize his plans are good. His plans aren't just good, they're actually better. God, I wanna build you a little house. David, I'm building you a dynasty that will stretch into forever. God, I'm tr- I wanna build you this dwelling. No, I'm building a dwelling place for my people forever. Hey, I wanna really be successful as king. Hey, David, I'm looking through the corridors of time for a kingdom that will never perish or fade. David, I have a bigger plan. And when you realize God's got a bigger and better plan, it makes it easier to accept. Billy Graham just wanted to be a chaplain, man. He just wanted to serve in the military as a chaplain. That's it. But he came to him and enlisted, and they said, you're too scrawny. Start bulking up, drinking eggs, getting strong. Now he came back, and they're like, you're not strong enough. Went out again, went out again. And finally, they said, man, you got one last shot. He's like Captain America, but with no special machine. And the night before he went back for his final trial, he got mumps. As an adult, who gets mumps? And they were like, you're cut, you're done, dream over. And that's gotta be disappointing. And yet as you look at his life now, God told him, hey, I see your plan to be a chaplain. No, but I'm gonna let you influence the military as you preach my name to more human beings than any other person who's ever lived on the globe. It's a better plan. Oswald Chambers just wanted to launch a seminary, man. I want to train ministers. I want to launch a seminary. He and his wife, they scrimped and saved and cast vision. And finally, they were able to buy this little building in their city. And as they bought the building, they're like, we're going to train pastors. It's going to be so great. It's going to be awesome. And then World War I hit and they closed it. And in the midst of that, he was like, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he got enlisted to be a chaplain and God sent him out to Egypt. It's funny because when I grew up as a kid, people used to say that when they were scared of the plans of God, well, I don't want to trust God. He may send me out in the middle of nowhere in Egypt. And that's exactly what he did to Oswald Chambers. The man lived in a tent in the desert, preaching to soldiers. And as he did it, his wife took copious notes on the front row. And then when he died suddenly of an appendicitis, she took his notes and transposed them into a little book entitled My Utmost for His Highest. And that's one of the most top-selling books ever printed in the English language. It's across the globe. He's had exponentially more influence than his little school. Not a bad dream, but God's got a different dream. Not a bad plan, but God has a bigger plan. His plans are better than your plans. God, I just want a big bank account. I want you to affect people's lives for eternity. God, I want to build my little kingdom. Your little kingdom's gonna fade, man. I'm building kingdom forever. God, I wanna build a TikTok empire. <laughs> It'll be gone in about two years. But I'm building something that will never perish, spoil, or fade. You gotta hear the voice of the Lord. Listen and receive God's word. God, I'm building you a house. No, David, I'm building you a house. God, I'm establishing a kingdom. No, David, I'm establishing a kingdom. I'm trying to establish a nation. No, David, I'm trying to reach the nations with the grace of God. It's not you will, you will, you will, David. It's I will, I will, I will. And when you get on board God's plan, it's easier to loosen your grip on yours because this is better. So when we had our little kids, uh, the Devo we read to them was the Jesus Storybook Bible. I actually 
when I was a college minister, bought it for college students. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, go buy the Jesus Storybook Bible. Don't be put off by the fact that it's a kid's book. I'm not insulting your intelligence. It's a good survey of the whole Bible, and it shows you how it all connects to the grand story of what God is doing in Jesus. Because that's what's happening here. This is a mountaintop experience in the Old Testament where he's saying, hey, David, I'm going to make a seed of David, a son of David, sit on a throne forever. He's talking about Jesus here. And you see, as that weaves through the story, I remember we would read it to our daughter when she was two years old. She did not understand anything. She'd be like, sheep! And you're like, yep, that is a sheep. There's also a grand design here, sweetie, of how God is weaving the story together for his glory among the nations. She didn't really grab that, but mom and dad were crying through the whole book because we realized we don't know what's going on. We have no idea, but we can know him and he knows what's going on and he's good so we can rest. His plan is bigger than yours and it's better than yours. So listen. And by listen, I don't mean sit quietly and wait to hear a voice. That's not what I mean. I mean, he has spoken to you and he has told us what he's doing. That's what David marveled at. Did you hear David's prayer? David's like, not only are you doing something crazy that you're establishing a kingdom forever. He's like, you told me about it. Who am I? It's amazing that you're doing it. It's amazing that you're sharing it. And what he shared with David becomes the foundation stone of all the hope during hard times in the prophets. Did you know that? Every time the prophets see their world crumbling apart, they go back to what these verses say. And you see in the New Testament, it's the basis of hope for Jesus. That when Jesus shows up, Mary, the first thing she does is quote this passage. I knew it. It's time. And so they're rooted in this. So hear the words of God to see what God's doing. So you may not understand the details, but you see there's a plan at work. And so we receive his word and then we rest in his care. We rest. It's funny. There was a movie years ago called King David starring Richard Gere before Pretty Woman, before all that. He was King David. And one of the worst movies ever rated on Rotten Tomatoes. It got like a 14 or something. Uh, It's terrible. And uh, so I'm absolutely not recommending it. But it's fascinating because in that movie, Richard Gere, King David, lays out his plan to build the temple for the Lord. He builds a little model of it and he's showing people the model like, oh, look how great it's gonna be. It's got some walls, got some turrets, it's gonna be a baller. And then Nathan comes to him later and was like, hey, the Lord doesn't want you to build that temple. And you see him go, no! And he grabs a baseball bat. They didn't even have those back then. And then he just starts to rage on his little model and they do it in slow-mo. And the song's like, why is God terrible? And he's like, I get it. And just beating this model and ripping his clothes like, ah, which is the exact opposite of what's happening in this text. (laughs) Does David lose his mind when God says no to his plan? Look at verse 16. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. Don't miss the language of that because he wasn't called King David earlier in the text. King David goes and sits like a kid on the floor in front of God and was like, okay, so I'm nobody and you just mapped out that you're gonna take care of me and my family and my people and the nations forever, and this is crazy, and he worships. He worships God. Even though he's not sure what he's gonna do next year, or the year after that, or the rest of his life. A lot of vagary, but a beautiful story. And so he rests. I ain't gotta worry about it. 
And if you notice in his prayer, read it again over and over and over and over. He says, the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord, you're in charge. And he calls himself your servant, your servant, your servant. You're running this show. I'm not. So I don't have to work and cajole and angle. I can just rest. I can rest. You're God. And you're not pocket God. I don't know if anyone remembers that game. Like early on when iPhones were coming out, like, ooh, look at this, buttons and pictures. I remember when it first came out, there was this game called Pocket God. And it was this little island, and there was these little characters, and you were their God. And as they developed the game, there's all kinds of things you could do to your people. Essentially, all of them capricious and mean. And as you play the game, you're like, I'm going to throw this guy into a volcano and I'm going to send a shark to eat that guy. And like, whoops, a tree attacked you. That's not even supposed to happen. And you would just capriciously and randomly injure your witless subjects. And some of us, we look at our lives and the setbacks. I wanted to be in a different place financially. I wanted to be in a different place relationally. I wanted to be in a different place in my career. And we can be frustrated and God's not scared of that frustration. And yet we can look at that and we can begin to accuse him of being pocket God. You're capricious and random and cruel. And he says, no, no, I'm not. I'm doing something good. And he takes David back. Hey, I did something good when I set people free from Israel. Yeah, they had to walk through a desert, but it's to get them to a promised land. And yeah, they had to fight when they got there, but they were able to be established. And yeah, you were running away from Saul, but I forged you into a wilderness in that desert, didn't I? And yeah, you're not gonna build my temple but your boy is. And yeah, he's going to make a mess and the sons of men are going to beat him. And yet even in the midst of all his failures, the seed of David who will reign on the throne forever is coming. The promise I made back in Genesis 49.10. So he sees God's purposes even in the midst of the pain and he rests. He rests. So was it wrong for David to plan? No. Second Chronicles 6 It says, now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it's not you who shall build the house. So is it wrong for you to make plans? Do you go, well, I guess God's in control, so I'll do nothing. Should I drink something now, God? Should I eat something now, God? Because you know, you're in charge. (laughs) No, all through the Bible, they make plans. You see... Paul doing it all through the New Testament. I'm trying to get to Spain. I'm trying to get to Rome. I tried to go here. The Spirit said no. What does the Spirit say no look like? It might just look like the boat sinking. But you never see Paul like, I'm so sorry I tried to go to Spain. I'm so sorry I was trying to get to Bithynia. Uh, Apologies. God's secret will is his to keep. So we make plans and when they fall apart, we don't worry about it. Because we go, you know what? You've revealed enough of your plan for me to know it's awesome. And you've shown me enough to show me you don't fail. And I know that you're the sovereign Lord and I'm the servant. So I'll just keep bumping along this path because your plan's better than my plan. So I receive your word. And some of you, let me just encourage you, please fight with all your will to let the word of God speak more to you than the world through your phone. Please let it shape your perspective. So much of the angst in our world today is because we fill ourselves with anxiety rather than good theology. And we know all that we're lacking because marketing is built to show you your, uh, uh, your lack. And we miss what we have because of the good hand of God. And David focuses his eyes on the sovereign Lord and he really has no questions. 
And so what do you do? You just sit and do nothing and wait for the world to end? No. So I receive God's word. I rest in his sovereign will. And then I run in the path of his commands because you set my heart free. That's what the psalmist says. You just excel at the revealed things. I love it. We didn't read it, but in 1 Chronicles 22, this is what David did after God gave him a nope. I want to build a temple. No. Okay. Uh, so he provided a large amount of iron to make nails for the doors of the gateways and for the fittings and more bronze than could be weighed. And he provided more cedar logs than could be counted. And then it says in verse five, David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced and the house to build the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I'll make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. And then in 1 Chronicles 29, he gave of his personal treasure of gold and silver for the temple of the Lord. And then in 1 Kings 2, he challenged his son, hey, be strong, be a man, obey the Lord, follow in his ways and build the house. And then in Acts 13, he eventually died. And it says about him, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. I'm just gonna go hard at what God lets me do. I'm going to excel at the revealed things. I can't control the unrevealed but I know God's revealed will. So let me just do that. And I had a mentor say it once, godly seeking people tend to get lucky. And he says, but I don't believe in luck. I don't either. I believe in a sovereign Lord who has shown us, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And so we can keep trying to submit our plans to him. Go for it. But just make sure you hear his too. And let's bump along and see what he does in our lives as we excel at the revealed thing. So for me, uh, broke my femur, two surgeries later. Uh, I would go out to the football field, uh, but not practice. I would go into the little trainer's room and had to break the scar tissue in my knee. Now they have machines that do it for you. Back then, back in my day, you just, <laughs> you just picked your knee up and went, hey, ah! and like slowly tried to get motion back in my knee. So that's how I'd spend every day. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Just breaking scar tissue. And I remember as I did that, this guy showed up that was part of this ministry at our high school. And he came into the training room and he was like, hey, Ben, you're not gonna believe this. He said, we wanna do a ministry outreach to the freshman football team. He said, so I talked to McDonald's and they're gonna give me fries, a burger and a Coke for a dollar. He said, so we're just gonna advertise to the freshman football players after practice for $1, you can have an entire meal. We're gonna give it to them. We're gonna sit down and we'll tell them who we are. We're in ministry. We wanna feed them and then just explain who Jesus is to them. And he said, Ben, as I was thinking about that, I thought, man, it'd be awesome if we had upperclassmen football players minister to these guys. He said, but the upperclassmen are all still practicing when the freshmen come in, shower and leave. So that'll never happen. He said, and then I remembered you and that you broke your leg and that you can't play football anymore. And I'm like, great, man, thanks. Yeah, it's awesome. He's like, so do you want to help? I'm like, Sure. So I showed up on that day, the entire team came and I'm crutching around like handing out fries, like here's a sacrifice for you, here's a burger, hey, and just kind of doing the best I can. And as I do that, I remember I fed them all and I looked over at them and I'm kind of waiting for the program to start and I look at this guy like, hey, what are you gonna do? And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he goes, well, say something. It's like, what? He's like, someone's gotta tell these kids about Jesus. I don't know what's going on, he's leaving. I'm like, wait, what? I didn't know that's what help meant. And for the first time in my life, 
I got up in front of a crowd of people and, 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 and did this, just told them, you're, you're beautiful in the image of God, but you're broken because of sin and you can't fix you. And yet this is the kind of God we have. A God who hears David's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, no, 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 no. I will, I will, I will, I will. I'm the sovereign Lord. I moved all of history. When I saw you run astray, I came running for you through the corridors of time. I planted my people in a strategic location. Then at at due time, I established a kingdom. And out of that kingdom, I brought forth the king, the son of David, who will establish his throne forever. Not crushing the sinners, but being crushed for them. Not destroying you, but taking your destruction upon himself. That the son of David came to live the perfect life you could not. Die the death you deserved buried in the grave and then he rose triumphantly forever to sit on a throne that won't perish won't spoil won't fade I don't need a house of cedar I have a throne forever I don't need to rule a nation I am the king over the nations the sovereign Lord saving to the son of David Jesus Christ I presented that message for the first time in my life and I remember at the end he came up and had these two stacks of cards it was one of those ministries that like had little uh, feedback cards at the end. Like, how'd we do? And uh, he came up and said, hey, you're going to want these. And one stack was all these kids that had written some version of, I want to learn more about what God's doing in the world through the person of Jesus. And the other stack was kids that said, I want him. If Jesus is forgiving people, I want him to forgive me. If he's healing people, I need him to heal me. If he's saving people, I need him to save me. If he's adopting people, I want in. I want to belong to a God who would move all of history to save me through King Jesus. And I remember looking at those cards and my legs still in a cast and all that it cost me to get there. And I thought this was better. It's worth it. So I don't want to minimize any pain you're going through and I really don't, and I don't know it all. I know some of it because we've all been through a crazy ride this year. But the king is always on his throne, and he is moving all of history, and he will build any kingdom, and he will kick away any crutch to get you to realize you're beautiful in God's image, but you're broken because of sin. And God sent the son of David, the king of all kings, Jesus Christ, to forgive, to rescue, to save. And you come to know him, And he won't tell you a lot of things. Where will I work next year, God? I'm not going to tell you that. But he'll tell you what he's doing in the world as you receive his word. He'll tell you his nature and his character so you can rest and hold your plans loosely. And then he'll give you a path of his commands that you can run in. And you watch what God does with the life of someone who sits like David and receives the grace of God and then runs in the path of his commands. You watch what he'll do through a church like that in a city like this. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.